Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Now today we are in, what is it, fourth week now of a sermon series that we've been running into Easter uh, through the season of Lent in which we are studying sin. <clears throat> Literally, we are building sort of a theology of sin. Exactly what you want to hear about on Sunday morning as you come to church, right? Your sin. But we're also looking at God's grace. And how he resolves that through Jesus. Nerd alert, you know, this is the sort of theological map that we've been working through. And I create stuff like this a lot of times just for reference for those of you who want to go back and kind of remember how we're working through Scripture um, each week. Um, This week, uh, we're going to be looking at the sphere of the human life uh, that I would call our power or our human agency, our free will, our capacity to choose. And how sin infects and impacts that. But we'll also be looking at Jesus, who he is, what he does, some of those key passages about how he resolves the slavery we have to sin. And, um, uh, and hopefully some people will walk away from church today set free. Now, with that being said, uh, if you will, would you stand with me? We're gonna begin with the reading of God's word. Uh, I'm gonna invite Caleb onto the stage. Caleb, uh, one of our high school youths, is going to read from Romans 6, 15, 20 through 23. Uh, before he does... Uh, I want, I want you to notice three things in the passage, okay? You can come on up here, Caleb. I, I don't bite, man. Just come hang out. <laughs> I, want you to know, I want you to notice three things in the passage here, all right? Because I think Paul thematically gets at all these, and this is what we're going to be hitting on today. We're going to be looking at the slavery of sin, the slavery that sets you free. That's a bit of a flip, right? And how to be liberated from one to the other. That said, Romans 6.15. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you become slaves to righteous living. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I'm using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you'll become holy. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things that you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thanks be to God for all of his word. Thanks for reading, Caleb. All right, let's start with the slavery of sin. Point number one. Clive Staples Lewis better known to many of us as C.S. Lewis. Anybody read a C.S. Lewis book, by the way? A lot of us. C.S. Lewis is an intellectual giant. Now, he grew up in a nominally Christian home. 
And uh, he lived a childhood and young adulthood that was just plagued with suffering, more suffering than many of us will experience our entire life. At nine years old, his mother died. His father was so grieved about it that he sent C.S. and his older brother off to boarding school to basically just have someone else raise him. Before the age of 20, C.S. Lewis fought in World War I. He was wounded in World War I. He lost one of his best buddies in World War I. In fact, when he and his buddy went to war, his buddy made him promise, if I die, I want you to take care of my mom. And C.S. Lewis kept that promise. I mean, it's just, it's crazy to think about just a hundred years ago, what people went through, their lives and the suffering wars. Now, as you probably know about Lewis, uh, he had a proclivity towards uh, the arts and literature. He liked to read Celtic myths. Anybody? He liked to read Norse legends and Greek literature and such. And so uh, as he grew older, he excelled at Oxford University, eventually became a professor there and worked there for 29 years. Now, at the beginning, his scholarship didn't lead him to Jesus, though. Led him away from Jesus. It led him to atheism. Uh, But over time, he built a relationship with another Oxford scholar, a scholar named J.R.R. Tolkien. Anybody recognize Tolkien? Yeah, Tolkien was the author of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and the movies are great, but sheesh, the books are are better. You gotta read them. Now, over time, Tolkien pressed the truth of Jesus into Lewis and was eventually a key part in C.S. Lewis's conversion. And I cannot overstate the impact that Lewis had on really the world, but also the Christian academy during the middle of the 20th century. So here's the reality. When C.S. Lewis uh, was, you know, like doing his radio interviews and writing all of his books and such, uh, there were very few Christian intellectuals alive that had the clout to sit at the table of the world. Let me explain. Around the 1920s, there was this big divide in the American church called the modernist fundamentalist divide. Uh, In that divide, they disagreed over really orthodox doctrines like the, the reason and purpose of Christianity, the resurrection and death of Jesus and its historicity, the, the inspired value of scriptures. What ended up happening was those who held to orthodox beliefs withdrew completely from the academy. Can't trust Harvard, can't trust Yale to, to teach our kids to indoctrinate them with progressivism. And so in response to that, they went off and they created a bunch of Bible colleges. In fact, uh, I got uh, my MDiv from one of these Bible colleges that was born out of the modernist fundamentalist debate. Here's the good thing about Bible colleges. They focus on the text, strictly on the text. So you come out of that knowing a lot about scripture. But one of the problems is they suck out of their curriculum. Things like the study of uh, ancient literature and ancient philosophy, the way people thought through time. So what can end up happening is they teach you what to think, but not how to think. Lose the capacity for critical reasoning based on, based on those who have come before us. It's interesting. I got my undergraduate degree from a liberal arts school, got my graduate degree from um, a Bible school, and the core curriculum at both was very, very different. Now, the consequence of that is by the 1940s, 1950s, there were almost no American intellectuals 
that had the academic credentials to stand on the world stage with the scholars of the world and speak on behalf of Christianity. And into that gap, C.S. Lewis and a few others step. Lewis was an Anglo-Catholic and he was basically a unicorn at this point because not only did he have orthodox faith, but he had the academic credentials to back it up. And his literature and scholarship has blessed a generation. I mean, he wrote scholastically with his allegory of loves. Uh, he wrote fiction. You've probably read like his space trilogies for adults or, or Narnia, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia for, for kids. He wrote apologetics like mere Christianity and um, the four loves. Go home, read some C.S. Lewis this week. Knock yourself out. You, you will be glad that you did. Now, that said, one of the most resonant ideas that Lewis introduced to me uh, was the way he thought about heaven and hell. See, Lewis didn't just think that uh, heaven and hell were like eternal destinations, if you will, but he also thought that they were indicative of our life's journey. The ideas of heaven and hell in scripture represent destinations, but they also represent the way we go through formation in this life. Let me explain. Uh, Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity. He says, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, what we might call our will, our agency, our capacity to choose. You're turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. You are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Now translation, Lewis says, heaven is a journey toward formation. Hell is a journey towards deformation. And the final destinations just serve to honor and immortalize the decisions that you've been making all along. Do you follow? Lewis once said, hell's the greatest monument to human freedom. And I thought, huh. That makes sense. Now, let me put it in street talk for you. This is how Lewis thought. Uh, with every decision we make, we're becoming people of hell or people of heaven. Uh, we become people of selfishness or people of love. Or in the words of Romans 6, we become people enslaved to sin or people enslaved to righteousness. Paul writes this in Romans 6, 19. It says, because of the weakness of your human nature, I'm gonna use this illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led where? What's the destination of it? It led deeper and deeper into sin. Romans 6, 23, he says, for the wages of sin is death. Or maybe we could say the destination of sin, it's death. Romans 6, 20, he says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. What was the result? What was the result of that? Well, now you're ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end where? In eternal doom. Or in other words, sin has a destination. And what's that destination as we walk the path deeper and deeper in? Where we become enslaved. We begin to head down the path of doom and death. 
Now, if you were to suck all like the spiritual language and all like the Jesus Christian talk out of Paul's argument, out of C.S. Lewis's argument, the way that they talk about our free will and how it's formed or deformed over time is actually a widely accepted understanding uh, by, uh, by philosophy. It is. At least the philosophers who believe that we actually have a free will to exercise. So basically, you kind of sum up the way philosophy sees this in three steps. First, step one. At first, humans have free will. We have the capacity to choose moment to moment. This makes us unique as a species. Animals do not have this. Okay, it's not like fishes are out there hiring life coaches, okay? I'm just, it's not like the geese are doing you know, pros and cons lists on whether we should migrate this year or you know, the lionesses are deciding whether they should go vegan. It's not, it's not how it works. They just, they act on evolutionary instinct. They just go, right? But not so with human beings. We human beings have the capacity to make our own life, to choose. Step two. Uh, over time though, we humans actually diminish our capacity to choose based on what we continually choose. Do you follow? So at first, when you're making decisions, you're building what we might call your character. You have good character, bad character, but as you make decisions, you build your character out. You pick up momentum. It's a proverbial snowball effect in one direction or the other until eventually the roll switch. And no longer do your decisions determine your character, but your character determines your decisions. It becomes the operating system of your life and you just do, you just live it out. Again, do you understand? So the result of this is step three, in the end, the decisions that you make become your destiny. We all make decisions, but eventually your decisions make you. Or this is how I say it to young people all the time, decisions determine direction and direction determines destination. Uh, Charles Duhigg, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Uh, he's at Harvard and Yale degrees, whatever. So he brings all this talk about formation into uh, the 21st century for us um, in his uh, best-selling book called The Power of Habits. Okay, and he, he really actually, he bases, he doesn't base it on, on scripture. Um, I'm not even sure if he's a Christian. He actually bases his arguments on neuroscience, neurobiology. The central thesis of the book is this. Uh, human beings are just a big bundle of habits. <laughs> he bases it on a Duke University study that says about 40% of our lives are unconscious habits. There's this neuro process called um, clustering that happens where our brains just automatically take complex actions and they turn them in to unconscious habits so that we can be more productive, save some brain power for us. That's why the first time you do something, it's like, could be very difficult, but the hundredth time it's easier and the thousandth time you're not even thinking about it anymore. Now, before COVID-19, uh, my garage wasn't a gym. It was just a garage, okay? And, uh, and so I would pull my, my SUV in it. Now, the first time I pulled my SUV in the garage, I was like, whoa, this is tight. So I actually got out and I measured my car and I measured the garage. I had four, just that's it, four inches of margin in width and six inches of margin in length in my garage. That's a tight fit. You wanna talk about landing the plane perfectly. So the first time I did it, like the first 10, 20 times I did it, 
I was locked in. I'm like, kids, get out of the car and go in the house. Daddy's got to focus, right? Like I am, because I, I want to get in and I don't want to scrape the car and I got to have room to open the door and all that, right? But as time went on, like month two, month three, month four passed, I got really good at it. Like I got to the point to where I could like, you know, send a text, eat breakfast and yell at my kids all while I'm pulling out the garage, which I'm just kidding, okay? Pastors don't yell at their kids, okay? You do, but not us. So, but it's just like... You know, you, you're in and out. I can give you other examples. Like dribbling a basketball, if any of you play basketball, you, you just learn how to dribble. If you ball, over time, you just, it's just there. Uh, breathing. Nobody in the room right now is like, inhale. Oh, shoot, I almost forgot again. Exhale, you know, like, honey, you gotta remind me. It's just, it, just, it just happens. You just do it. Or let me get a little bit more personal for you. Um, it's that reason why you always gotta grab a cookie when you walk by the cupboard in the house, or you walk by the lounge at work. It's that reason why you always gotta light a cigarette at the end of the day. It's that reason why you gotta watch pornography at the end of a long week in order to relieve stress or get online and shop and just buy something in order to feel happy. Or the reason why you just snip at your kids or snip back at your parents whenever they do something that upsets you. At first, they're choices. They're conscious choices that you make. But over time, they begin to solidify themselves and you become enslaved to them. Maybe the most glaring example of how this works in the human condition is, uh, is addiction. If, uh, if you're an addict, or if you've ever known and loved an addict, they'll tell you, C.S. Lewis is right, it's hell. It's hell, because you just feel locked in. The addiction cycle may be the best illustration of hell in the human condition, because you know what happens? Okay, at first, at first, you get addicted because the substance delivers the pleasure or the release, the escape, the relief that you're looking for in a way that your normal everyday life doesn't deliver. But over time, you need more and more of the drug to get less and less and less of the original high until it completely consumes you and you're numb to the pleasure that it offers and it begins to destroy your life. It destroys your relationship, it takes your money. Addictions can be a jealous God. They will take loyalties to no one else. Look, that's a case study. That is a case study of how all sin enslaves us. You choose it over and over and over again until you just have to. You just have to sin. You just have to pull out your phone and, and check. You don't even know why you do it. You're just pulling it out. And your thumb automatically, habitually knows where that social media app is. I, I dare you to mix up your apps on your phone this week. See how that disorients your life. Put the trinity of social media on different flip pages. So you have to actually flip form instead of just go, because your finger just knows right now. It just knows. You just go. It's the reason why you have to have a glass, no now two, no now three glasses of alcohol before bed every night. It's the reason why you just have to win every argument. Or you can never apologize. Like, I'm sorry, I'm just, I can't do it. It's not who I am, you think. 
It's the reason why you just have to turn on trash shows for two hours every night. You don't even know what, you don't even like, you don't even like the show. She's just watching it. Or it's the reason why you have to work 90 hour weeks. It's how you built the business after all, or the reason why you have to travel 35% of the year in order to afford that house that you never live in anyways. Now, here's the thing. Um, if I were to ask you deep down inside, like if I could get you alone out of the moment of temptation and were to ask you deep down inside what sort of life you wanted for yourself, you know, you know what you want. You know what your deeper desires are. Like if I were to say, like, what do you, what do you want to do with, with your money, really? You'd say, well, of course I want to pay off my student loans and like be generous with God and after all, we make over six digits together. We should be able to make progress on this. But you can't. You just can't. Why? Because you just spin. You just keep adding luxury to your life. You don't know why. You don't need it. Ten years ago, you used to turn up your nose at those rich people. But now you just, you're in the cycle. You say, I, I want to marry, I wanna marry a, a, a man of God and grow in Christ together. But you just keep going to his house. Every, every night. Can you know this, this is not the long-term solution, but you keep going. You would say, I want to radically disciple my kids to know Jesus. But then you just keep adding stuff to the schedule. You know, there's another club, another club. Another, you gotta get them on that travel team because that'll get them the scholarship. And then before you know it, church is a backseat priority. I want to be known as a person of integrity. I do. But then you're the gossip king. You're the gossip queen. Like you think people come to me because I'm just an open person. It comes to me just because I'm a good listener. I have found about one out of five times that's the case. Other four out of five times is just because you stir up the water cooler talk. You enable it. You light the fire. Oh, no, she didn't. Or maybe you would say, look, I really, of course I want, a, I want a relationship with God. I want to feel his presence in my life, experience his guidance. Of, of course I do. But then you can't because you get three minutes into prayer time and you just have to pull out your phone and you have to go to your to-do list or you have to turn on a screen or something, right? Your brain just can't sit still. You see how this works? John Mark Comer said it like this. He's a pastor and an author. And he was quoting somebody else, but I can't remember who he's quoting, so I'll just quote him. Um, he said, our strongest desires are not always our deepest desires. And isn't that the truth? Our, I'll go ahead and promise you it's the truth. Our strongest desires are not always our deepest desires. I mean, you find yourself in the moment of temptation. And the only thing you can think about is that desire just yelling at you. And so you choose it again and again and again and again until it's, it's who you are. But if I could get you in the moment of temptation and I could pull you out of that and, and like get you sober-minded in, into the best version of yourself. I don't know when the best version of you is. Maybe it's on Sunday mornings and you're like listening to God's word or when you're reflecting over communion, whatever. If I could get you there then in that moment, you know what you want. Like you know the deeper desires that you have and you want them in a, in a deep way. You want that to become your life. But in the moment of temptation, you can't choose it. You just can't. You're enslaved to sin. Lewis says that's hell. That is hell to know who you were created to be and to desire it in a deep way, but to be enslaved to fleeting temporary desires instead, that's hell.
And it's what many of us are stuck in. All in our own unique ways. Now, that leads us to the second point, though, that Paul makes here in Romans 6. Talks about the slavery that we uh, experience to sin, but he also talks about the slavery that sets you free. Pay close attention to what he does here, verse 16. Uh, He says, don't you realize uh, that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? Whatever you choose. You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or, or, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin and you have become slaves to righteous living. Now, interesting twist here. What does Paul say the solution to slavery is? Slavery. Slavery to God, though, to God. The only way to break the chains of that evil master who's oppressing your life is to find a stronger master who is good and can kick him out. This is actually how Jesus talks about it, by the way. In Matthew chapter 12, he heals a demon-possessed person. And the Pharisees are like, ha, like that. for some reason they're salty. So like throwing shade on Jesus. Like he, he, he's doing it by the power of the devil. He's doing it by the power of Satan. That's how he's casting out demons. And Jesus is like, that logic doesn't work. Because the devil has a civil war with himself. Is the house divided? He goes, no. The only way that someone can cast the master out of the house is if they're stronger than he is. Matthew chapter 12, this is like a Jesus flex here. Uh, Verse 29, he tells this parable real quick. He says, who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who can tie him up and then plunder his house. So Jesus is the stronger master. Jesus is the slavery that sets you free. So the key here is just to trade masters. Now, what Jesus is teaching, what Paul's teaching, what the whole uh, sort of library of scripture teaches us here is actually what we were made for as human beings, our telos, if you will. It teaches that we were made to worship. It's who you were created to be. We were actually made by God to be mastered. We are only free in so much as we get to choose, which is, this is a lot of freedom, by the way. We get to choose what or who we're mastered by. But at the end of the day, we're all mastered by something. We all worship something. Nobody doesn't worship. Now, I used this illustration actually pretty recently, but I'm gonna use it again because it's just, it's good. It illustrates this well. Um, in the, the first movie, first book of, of Harry Potter, uh, Potter comes across uh, this mirror called the Mirror of Erised. Do you remember this moment? in the book. So Erised is just desire spelled backwards, by the way. It's a kid's book. So it's just trying to make it obvious for you. It's desire. And um, when, when Potter looks into the mirror, you remember what he sees? He sees his parents loving him, you know, touching him, adoring him. He's like, this is some great magic. So he, he goes and gets uh, Weasley, right, his buddy, to look in the mirror as well because he wants Weasley to see his parents. But when Weasley looks into the mirror, what does he see? He didn't see Harry's parents. He's like, I'm a sports star. He's like a, a Quidditch champion. 
And they don't really put it together. Like, what's going on with the mirror? In fact, they don't put it together until one of Harry's mentors comes and explains it to him. He says, the mirror shows everyone their deepest desires. So we all see something when we look in a mirror, even you. It's just the question is what? What's the deepest desire of your heart? What are you looking to to give you life? What's that thing where you say, if I could have this or if I get there, then I'll feel secure, then I'll feel safe, then I'll feel significant, then I think I'll be happy, then I'll know who I am. Whatever that is, that's what you worship. And what you worship determines your destiny. So, if we can bring ourselves to look in the mirror and see God embracing us and us affectionately looking back to the Father, then Paul says we can literally rewire our destiny. We can choose a new destiny. At Romans 6, 19, he says, previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led even deeper to sin. That was your path. That was your destiny. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. You see the different destinations here? Whenever you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. But what's the result of that? What's the result? You're, you're now ashamed of the things you did, things that end in eternal doom. But now you're free free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God, now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the slavery of sin has a destination and it looks like death and doom and you can swap that out for life. And holiness, if you trade masters. If over time, you stack up the choices of being mastered by Jesus, of living into his righteousness, day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, the same effect happens. What happens is you actually lose your ability to choose anything else other than holiness and righteousness. And that is a beautiful thing. This is actually what the Apostle Paul and the New Testament calls freedom. It's so upside down from how we understand it. Paul says freedom is actually losing your agency and holiness. Is that your life goal? Freedom is actually diminishing your free will into righteousness to where you just become a person of holiness and righteousness. Now, that is so different from the way our culture defines freedom. This is upside down thinking, isn't it? In our time today, we talked about it last week, freedom is unrestricted freedom. It's you do you, find your truth, yeah, to thine own self be true because the heart wants what it wants. After all, go back to, please reference last week's sermon. Freedom, y'all, I know my rights. That's, that's the mindset. But Paul kind of laughs at that. He goes, that's just an illusion. You're just fooling yourself. Because really what you call freedom is just enslavement to one of the desires of the flesh. There's a better option. True freedom isn't freedom from all rulers or all rules. It's choosing the right ruler and his rules to serve as the bumper, uh, you know, the, the bumpers of your, of your life, the rumble strips on your road. 
so that you continue to head towards eternal life. I, I don't know about you, but um, for me, I grew up in a non-denominational church, very much like this one. Uh, and I'm so thankful for my upbringing, so many things that have just like foundation stones that put in my life and my faith journey. But as you get older, you start noticing, well, I wish this was a part of my experience though growing up. Or why did why those churches do that, but we didn't do it? Um, one of the things I feel like I missed out growing up, a lot of evangelical churches do, is um, I feel like we missed out on the saints. Like the veneration of the saints. Catholics do this really, really well. Now, not the worship of the saints, not praying to the saints. Like, I don't think that's biblical. But the admiration of their lives, like when you look at the lives of the saints, it illustrates Paul's principle here really, really well. When people stack up the months and the years and the decades, they really do become people of beauty and righteousness and faithfulness. It's astounding. Uh, so many of you guys know, I, uh, I got my first theology degree from uh, a bunch of Benedictine Catholics. And it was a great experience. And uh, our favorite day of the school year every year was All Saints Day because we got it off school. <laughs> no school today, it's All Saints Day. And as um, interesting, if you, if you look at like the, the Catholic liturgical calendar, every single day is a feast of saints. I'll give you just a few examples from March. Um, on March 7th, did you know that they celebrated the Feast of, of Perpetua and Felicity? Perpetua is just this amazing 20-something girl who was a, a mother of a newborn, but willing to give her life to Jesus. It is an inspiring story. She died a martyr. March 17th, uh, we call it St. Patrick's Day. Believe it or not, that day's not about beer or... <laughs> You know, <laughs> leprechauns. I don't know, is there like a lepre I think there's a leprechaun on the shelf now or whatever. Good God, help us, right? It's, it's actually about a saint. <laughs> Patrick, who as a late teenager escaped slavery, but then felt called by God to go back to Ireland where his slave masters were and evangelize them. And he did and he changed the spiritual temperature of an entire country and then the entire continent of Europe. Do you know that two days ago um, on the uh, church calendar, they celebrate the Annunciation of the Lord. March 25th is exactly nine months before December 25th when we celebrate the birth of the Lord. So the church is one of their merry days. They remember how the angel came and announced to Mary that Jesus would live in her, you are blessed. And she said, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to your word. Beautiful, beautiful. Now for the last year, uh, every, almost every single day, I have been reading a saint story just to see how it would shape me, how it will impact me. And I'm telling you, it's not just Catholic saints, it's just any, any Christians, the big C church saints. And it has done my soul good. Because when I read the lives of these holy people, it literally broadens and lengthens the horizon of human possibility that I believe I've become really, really interested in, in 
saints of the past like MLK Jr. or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Festo Kievenger or Dorothy Day, Mary McLeod Bethune, St. Benedict, St. Augustine. When you look at their lives, you think to yourself, maybe, just maybe, something like that could be true of me too. If I can stack up the years, stack up the decades, just like them, maybe I could live a life of such faithfulness and beauty. Yeah, I really... I really wish, if I could wish anything today over, over the youths, love you youths, um, I would wish and pray that you would trade, be a generation or be just a small remnant among a generation that venerates the saints over the celebrities. Please. We have this strange infatuation with celebrities in our culture where we allow them to set the horizon for literally everything. Like we let them set the horizon for things that don't matter as much like our lingo or our fashion, which is fine. But then we also let them set the horizons for things like the way we think morally or the way we think politically or how we steward our bodies and our sexuality and our money. And I think to myself, sheesh, there are way better gurus for righteousness than them, available to you. I think to myself, wow, look at Desmond Tutu. Wow, look at Harriet Tubman. Wow, look at Corey Tinboom. Wow, look at Pandina Ramabai. Wow, look at Thomas Dorsey. Look at Mother Teresa. Look at William Tyndale. Look at the great fathers of the church like Ignatius or Clement or Polycarp, the great martyr. Wow, David Brooks. Um, he's a columnist for the New York Times Christian. Uh, he once said this. He said, we're decent at learning stuff but we are fantastic at imitating it. So I would just challenge you, be the generation that surrounds your mind and surrounds your body with the community of saints, both living and in heaven. Imitate the trajectory of their lives. Stack up faithful years. Lose your agency to choose in a sea of holiness and faithfulness. I promise you, you will not be sorry. Now last. Last. How do we do it? How do we move from the slavery of sin to slavery to God? Well, in order to see that, we actually have to rewind from Romans 6, 15, 23 to the beginning of the passage. This is where we will, we will close today. Romans 6, chapter 1, or chapter 6, verse 1, Paul writes this. He says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? Now, you ever wonder why there's such a heavy emphasis on baptism in this church and really in this series in which we're talking about sin? It's because it's in the text. You, just can't, you can't do anything about it. Paul explicitly connects freedom from the slavery of sin with, his, or with the decision here to be baptized. Because Paul sees baptism as this amazing once-in-a-lifetime opportunity where you get to rewind 2,000 years in human history to the climactic moment in human history where Jesus is nailed to the cross and you are, you're put, your old self is put to death with him. 
as you're buried underneath that watery grave. Romans 6, 4, we died and we were buried with Christ by baptism. When you're immersed under that water, it's like some sort of supernatural, grace-soaked miracle that happens. The old self dies, the slavery to sin dies, it's buried in a watery grave, and then when you're pulled up out of that grave, you rise to be a new person, Romans 6, 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may new, uh, live new lives. You participate in the resurrection. In some strange way, you're given new like spiritual DNA, a new life, new motivation. It's like you're reborn, y'all, with a new family that you're incorporated into to walk alongside of you. Like what else is there in the Christian journey? Quite like baptism where you get to participate in the three days of Easter. I've never understood why people are so resistant to it. It's like, why aren't you lining up to do it? Chapter six, verse five, since we have been united with him in his death, Paul says, we, notice he says we, he's including himself, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. Three times Paul actually, uh, his, his conversion is recounted in the book of Acts. Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. In Acts 22, Paul recounts the theology himself that he was given by Ananias. Ananias said, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Call upon the name of the Lord. I pray that over you today. But when you talk to addicts in recovery, it's interesting. They'll tell you when they were at rock bottom, they'll say things like, I, just, I did not know who I was. That's what their families will say to you too. You go to their families and say, I, I didn't know who my husband was. I didn't know who my daughter was. I didn't know who my friend, my sister was anymore. And the reason why they say that is because it's true. It's true. They were not themselves anymore. They were living out of an unreality that had taken over their lives. I want you to know today that if that's true of you, if you are enslaved to sin today, if you're enslaved to a substance, enslaved to work, enslaved to worry, enslaved to pornography or to greed, if you're enslaved to some impossible image of your body or the approval horizontally of others, if you're enslaved to past regret that keeps bearing down on you with guilt or you're enslaved to like this meaningless existence that you fill over your life. I want you to know that's not who you are. Does it have to be who you are? There is a truer version of you still out there available for you today in Jesus. Like I've talked a lot today about how sin sort of enslaves us into our decisions and you can't choose anymore. But I'll say all that with this caveat. I do believe there is one way to supercharge your transformation, break the chains. There's like a supernatural reset button on your story. And it is this, according to Paul, be baptized and step into a healthy Christian community. Now, I don't wanna overpromise here. It's not like that water's magic and all of a sudden your bad habits just disappear. I've seen it before. I've seen radical transformation and healing happen, I have. But more often than not, what happens is you step into a process. 
and you now have the spiritual resources available to you to change the trajectory of your life. You have the internal motivation that you need. You have the communal accountability and relational encouragement that you need. You have the theological belief structures that you need, a new pattern of life with spiritual mothers and fathers that you need. You have scripture, which is the reference point for truth that you need. You have an eternally significant purpose in the home, workplace, city, and in the church that you need. You have an army of examples, Jesus being the first, with a long line of saints to follow that you need. And you have a supernatural power that comes from the spirit that is capable of breaking even the heaviest chains. You ever heard the old saying, uh, well, that's just who I am. It's terrible theology. It's terrible theology. Doesn't have to be that way. If that's what you're enslaved by today, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, I rebuke that lie in your heart and in your life. And I want you to know that I believe in you. I believe in you because I believe in Jesus. The question is, is, do you? Do you? So let this passage wash over you and then we're going to take communion together. The rest of Romans 6, starting in verse 7. When we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Praise God. Since we died with Christ, we, all, uh, we know we will also live with him. Praise God. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also, you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not let sin, uh, or do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Uh, instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace.